This is Soundstage founder Doug Schneider. You're listening to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast, your semi-regular deep dive into news, facts, opinions, and anecdotes about everything that really matters in the world of high-performance audio. Hosts Brent Butterworth and Dennis Berger have more than five decades worth of audio product testing experience and a few hours of podcasting experience as well. Now, here's Brent and Dennis. Hi, I'm Brent Butterworth, editor of Soundstage Solo. And I am Dennis Berger, editor of Soundstage Access. And we are here today to bring you the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast, mm-hmm. a semi-weekly, or is it bi-weekly? One of the two. Every First other month, week, yeah. every yeah. other week, twice a Ish. month or something, discourse on what's going on in the world of audio. Everything you need to know, or at least everything we find entertaining enough to share with you. There you go. About audio. We are part of the Soundstage Network, which is go to soundstage.com and check it out. It is nine microsites and some YouTube videos and one awesome podcast that are all dealing with different aspects of audio. So go check it out, soundstage.com. So Mm -hmm. Dennis, we are going to start our discussion today with a difference of opinion. Mm. And on the one end, we have an article from The Absolute Sound, a you know, revered audio publication going back oh, 40 or 50 years, about a new headphone listening station that costs uh, $29,000. On the other hand, we have a YouTube video from a guy named Crinical, who's famous as like a guy who measures earphones and actually does some voicing on them for different manufacturers. And he contends that an Apple dongle the little thing that you plug into the lightning connector of your iPod or your iPhone or whatever is perfectly fine. It's all the headphone amp you need. So mm-hmm. we are going to dig into that controversy a little bit. And what do you have for us? Uh, you know, I want to bring our founder, Doug Schneider, in for the segment. second segment. Uh, you and I have talked a lot about what measurements mean in terms of, you know, capturing sort of what people like and dislike in terms of audio and what it means to the end user and what it means to us as reviewers. But I want to get Doug's perspective on what measurements mean to him as a publisher, because there are not a lot of online publications in the world of audio that are doing measurements and certainly fewer still that are doing measurements to the degree that we're doing at soundstage and even fewer still who are mixing those objective measurements with the subjective listening impressions. So I just want to get his take on it, why he started doing it and what they mean to him. And cool. uh, what, what are we, uh, what are we wrapping up with this week? We're going to wrap up with something you turned me on to, and that is a YouTube video by PS audio founder, Paul McGowan, where he talks about different speakers being either resolving or not resolving. And you and I, I, I think you were, you were quite su- surprised to find that he considers some pretty revered and respected brands to be not resolving mm-hmm. and some other brands that don't seem any, especially any better or worse than those to be resolving. Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to dig into, we're going to try to figure out what resolving means. (laughs) We are going to combine forces here and try to figure out what he's talking about. (laughs) Yeah. Before we get there though, let's, let's dig into this absolute sound thing because you know, I look, 
we've been friends for many years and we have a very old tradition of sending articles to each other back and forth and just going WTF. Um, and I think this, this article that you sent me from the absolute sound, look, I'm not picking on the absolute sound, but when you sent me the article about this D- DCS headphone listening station for mm-hmm. nearly $30,000, that was a big WTF for me. Um, so well, wow. we should say we should say right at the top. We're, we just mm-hmm. picked. We're not. We just chose the absolute sound here because they happen to run an article on it, so that you can mm-hmm. actually go to theabsolutesound.com. That's t h e absolutesound.com, and find this. So it's just you know it could have been any publication. We're not. There's nothing. No criticism of absolute sound here. No, and they just fact, republished the press release. So they yeah. talk about this new uh, DCS headphone listening system, and it is more. It's like twenty nine thousand one hundred and fifty dollars. I think was the price. US. And so it com- U.S. and it combines a it's three boxes. the The DAC is built into the streamer, right. so it's a streamer. So the stream the streamer pulls off your your content from the web, and then. The second box is a master clock, okay, mm-hmm. that that provides a nice stable time source for the streamer slash DAC, and then there's the headphone amp, and you can buy them all separately, but you know they're they're they kind of all stacked nicely atop one another, and they're all kind of you know clearly they they work as a system, you know they all the designs all match, and it actually looks really cool, but it's not. $30,000 cool looking. Um, like, let's say a product from Dan D'Agostino Master Audio Systems is thirty or 40000 bucks, And you know a what? A lot of B&O stuff, Bang & Olufsen. Like, you yeah. look at that and go, yeah, I could see $30,000. Yeah, it's like you there. look at that and you go, like, well, that's really cool looking. And people would walk into your place and go, like, what is that thing? Mm-hmm. And if you want to spend ten or twenty or thirty or forty, fifty thousand dollars to have a thing where people walk into your house and say, "What is that thing?" Well, I have a Shih Tzu, right? And people walk into my house and see my Shih Tzu and go, "Like, <laughs> they don't go, what is that thing?" They go, "Like, oh my gosh, it's a cute dog." And you know, yeah. I would say, prop. Well, probably, actually, it's probably this damn dog has probably cost me about thirty thousand bucks total. <laughs> When you figure the medical care, all the crap I buy for her, the yeah. extra ho- the, the colossal amount of extra money I have to pay in hotel bills right now. So clearly the focus here is on quality. So you're getting a streamer that is ostensibly better than whatever other streamer you would buy, be it a Sonos thing or a Blue Sound thing or any – lots of audio brands have streamers. Uh, you're getting a headphone amp, which is ostensibly better than – you know, the other headphone amps that you would buy. I mean, there's a lot of top-notch headphone amps out there for 500 or a thousand bucks. And you're getting this clock. And you're, of course, every, every DAC has a clock of some sort, right? Otherwise mm-hmm. they couldn't function. They have to know like when they, you know, when to read the next sample. So on the other hand, you have this guy named Crinical, and this is C-R-I-N-A-C-L-E. And you should check out his, channel on youtube so he started out as a guy who measured actually got a uh you know uh i think it's a gross uh uh you know coupler that you can use to measure earphones so he does you know legitimate really good measurements and he was kind of famous for measuring like every set of earphones on the market Mm -hmm. so he also got involved in tuning and manufacturers would hire him to do tuning and so he also started this uh, and, and in fact on soundstage i uh i reviewed the KZX Critical CRN earphones, which you can find on soundstagesolo.com. 
uh, and you know, pretty pretty good stuff. And they were like forty dollars or something. So he started a YouTube channel. His YouTube channel is great. He's got a lot of personality. He really knows what he's talking about. And he came out with one that really shocked me, though, because he came out with one where the the, the splash image on it is basically a close-up of the Apple Dongo. I think they cost $30 or something. And it's got a lightning connector on one end and a, a 3.5 millimeter headphone jack on the other. And you plug that in to your iPhone, which, of course, no iPhones have headphone jacks anymore. And it gives you a headphone right. jack and you can plug in. And so he's basically saying, this $30 thing is fine. Mm-hmm. And you don't need, you know, it, except in the relatively rare cases where you have headphones that really need a powerful amp, like let's say certain Hi-Fi Man models, yeah. you you don't need an amp any better than this. He says certainly for earphones, you don't need an amp any better than this because they're all sensitive enough to play off of off of this thing at very loud levels. And he goes further into it and he says, you know, look, I I listen to all these digital amplifier, digital to audio. Or, uh, let me try this again. Digital to odd man. Th- can you help me out? <laughs> digital to analog converters. Ah, oh, thank you so much. So you listen to all these digital to analog converters, and he said, you know, kind of, they all kind of sound pretty much the same to me. Mm-hmm. And you know, they do to me too. So just saying so. So and you know, amplifiers. Look, amplifiers don't sound all that different. And you know, use as he points out in the thing. You know, if you if your amplifier is used within the limits of its power, you know, if you're not asking it to put out more power than it can, they're all going to work fine. And I got to say, you know, I, I think I might be the only person who's actually published blind listening tests on these headphone amp DACs. There's a lot of these products. I mean, yeah, the Apple dongles are really cheap one. You can get a similarly cheap one from, say, Anchor Soundcore and a couple other brands, you know, $30, $40, something like that. Fio, I think, makes one for that price. And then mm-hmm. you can step up to about $100 or $200 for the products like the AudioQuest Dragonfly and the Earfun Eagle and things like that. And then you can step up to three or $400. And I've actually done a couple of rounds of, of blind testing where we got multiple computers, you know, you got lined up four laptops, all of them running FUBAR 2000, which is a free, uh, you know, high res audio player mm-hmm. and matching the levels as best I could. Cause it's, it's the, the, the level steps that you get in something like FUBAR are not, you know, 0.1 dB. It's like 0.3 dB or something like that. Right. But still, you can get a pretty close to a decent level match on it. And I have a, a switcher. I, may, I have like kind of a modular switcher system I made where you can plug in different things and do blind testing with a lot of different kinds of products. And so we've had people come in, you know, blind test, and the, the one person operates the, uh, you know, gets all four DACs going with, with the same exact file on all of them, either high res or maybe an MP3 or who knows what. And you play them all and they're at match levels and the person just has, you know, one, two, three, four on the switch. And so you can't, as the test administrator, you can't tell what they're listening to. And mm-hmm. they just know one, two, three, and four. And you do that and, you know, they sound a little different, but they don't sound consistently better or worse. And, you know, yeah. I would argue, if someone wants to argue this, and I'm sure there's a lot of high-end audio writers and a lot of audiophiles that would like to argue this point, but none of those people have ever done this test. I guarantee right. you, because if they did this test, they'd be like, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and, 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 and and that's the thing. I, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but I just wish we could have more honest conversations about how much difference there is and, more importantly, how meaningful the difference is. You know, we're, we're yeah. always talking about ABX testing. And I, I know a while back when there was a big push for 
uh, you know, sort of a big attack against Spotify for not having a truly lossless thing. There was somebody set up an ABX test where, okay, can you tell the difference between truly lossless and sort of uh, Ogvorbus at the bit rates that Spotify is mm-hmm. doing? I took that test. I can identify the the Ogvorbus about 80% of the time, I think was okay. my number. I can yeah. tell. But what that doesn't tell you is, does it really matter? <laughs> like, like, okay, I can tell, but how much of a difference, how much meaningful difference is it really? And do I care? You know? And the thing is the, 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 the Vorbis sounds so great that it's like, okay, am I, am I going to get fussy about what might be, uh, I think before we've used terminology, like half percent difference, you know, especially if you consider the fact that when I'm using Spotify as opposed to Cobuzz, I'm probably in the car where, man, I guarantee you any different. I could be list- I could probably be listening to 64 kilobit per second MP3 and it would sound fine. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, it, it's, again, I think we, and I, I'm not saying I have the answer. I'm just saying we need to find a way to better quantify how much difference are we actually talking about and how much should you care about that difference? Because sometimes little differences are substantial. Sometimes little differences aren't. And I just wish we could have a more open and honest conversation about that. And look, I'm looking at this DCS stuff that you're, that you're putting in front of me here. And yeah, you're right. In terms of aesthetics, well, you're not going to sell me on that. But how much difference could you really have between this and look what I'm using largely for my headphone setup right now is this um, hell de- uh, HEL mm-hmm. uh, desktop DAC and headphone amp. That's like, I don't know, 200 something bucks. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. How much difference am I really going to hear between that setup and this $29,000 DCS setup? I, you know, it, and I, I will say, you know, there are, there's like the, the, the Hi-Fi Man uh, Susfara, which is easily one of the best headphones you can buy. It's 6,000 mm-hmm. bucks. It's very difficult to drive. I think even, I think Hi-Fi Man just came out with an amp that actually really will drive the thing. Okay. Yeah. If you've got an extreme headphone like that, you probably need more power. And certainly there's a lot of audiophile headphones that, uh, that an Apple dongle it's not going to be quite adequate to drive, right? It'll get mm-hmm. you up to a listenable level, but if you want to play a little bit louder, which, you know, you should always be careful about that, but once in a while, maybe you want to crank it up a little bit. Um, the Apple dongle's not going to do it, and that, that will be on a lot of Hi-Fi Man models and on even some of the audiophile Sennheiser models and things like that. So fine, but you know what? You can go get the, the Earman Eagle for $100, and it'll... It'll, it won't, still won't drive that that the really big fancy hi-fi mans, but you know, you're, you're gonna <laughs> yeah. get, you're you're gonna need to spend a thousand bucks to get an amp that'll do that, or hook them or hook them directly to a speaker amp. You can also do that oh, too. Yeah. So anyway, I, I really I'm just really g- glad that Critical came out and did this and and said this in a way that was really frankly more more extreme and gutsy than I would have done, mm. Be, even though he's right. Uh, you know. <laughs> and it really digestible. And one of the, one of the things that I loved that he did was he acknowledged every sort of corner case where, okay, maybe this isn't enough for you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of, here's your rare situation where perhaps not. Right. But for most people it's, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. And now, now granted one, one thing I think 
I don't think he acknowledges. You know, sometimes you do just want to buy something a little fancier, and that's fine mm-hmm. too. Whatever, whatever turns you on, you know. If you you and I have talked before about like the, the Corvette that my dad and I have, like, I'm super, I'm super thinking about installing a new air intake that would give me five extra horsepower. Am I going to feel five extra horsepower on the track once I'm able to drive again? No, I am not, but who cares? I kind of want it because it's cool and I'm into Corvettes, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. That's fine. So, you know, I mean, I buy musical instrument stuff that, (laughs) you know, that I don't, you know, I, I, I have a. I don't know how much my, my, my main ukulele I play is like more than a thousand bucks. I really love it, but, uh, I don't need that. And, and, you know, uh, so I think let's, let's wrap this up and we're going to move on to, uh, we're going to invite soundstage founder, Doug Schneider to weigh in on the subject of audio measurements. Yeah, that's going to be fun. Okay. See you guys in a minute. Welcome back to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. I'm Dennis Berger. I'm Brent Butterworth. And I'm Doug Schneider. (laughs) Hey, Doug. Where'd you come from? Who are you? Well, the founder of Soundstage. Goes back to 1995, and I'm still here. Yeah. We're happy to have you here today. I wanted to bring you on because Brent and I have been talking a lot about, uh, you know, measurements, what they mean, what they don't mean, how we sort of convey them to the readers and things. But I wanted to bring you in and talk to you about what they mean to you as a publisher, how you started integrating measurements into the coverage at Soundstage and things like that. So I guess maybe that'd be a good place to start. Like, when did you decide to start doing measurements at Soundstage and why? Like I said, Soundstage started in 1995, and it was actually in 1999. I live in the same city as Canada's National Research Council, NRC, that I went over to NRC to interview Paul Barton, you know, PSB speakers. And when I was interviewing Paul Barton, he was talking a lot about speakers and measurements and design ideas. And then he says, why don't you measure speakers for your publication? And I've always had a lot of respect for measurements. And I said, yeah, but how would I do that? And he said, I'll introduce you to the guys here. And he introduced me to Renee, who was the uh, technical person there at the time. And long story short, a week later, we had a contract with NRC to start doing measurements there. And from the year 2000, we started publishing measurements and continue to do so. So that was speakers. How did he get into electronics from there? Because, you know, just about everything I review, you measure. The interesting thing about the measurements of electronics is the success of the speaker measurements. Now, we didn't know it would be a success. In fact, when we announced that we were doing measurements at NRC, one of the Canadian speaker designers at the time wrote me right away and he said, congratulations, this is amazing. And you're going to be out of business in six months. (laughs) And I'm like, what? 
And he says, you, you start measuring these company speakers, they're, they're not going to send you anything. These guys don't want their, measure, their speakers measured. I'm like, are you sure? So I was a little hesitant, but you know, we went ahead with it, and the opposite came true. In fact, there were a few companies who did not want their speakers measured. They were like, no way, we're not sending you speakers now. But many companies did want their speakers measured, and I'll tell you why. NRC has a sterling reputation, always has, and we were coming in the first publication I think in the world, to use a real anechoic chamber, certainly in North America. At that time, others were measuring them outside in their driveway, in their backyard, in the room. Here we had a, a world-class facility to measure speakers. And really good companies that make really good speakers sent their speakers to us very willingly. So while we did have a few companies, hey, we're not going to deal with you, mostly it was a boon for us. So once that was going well, we moved into electronics measurements. And that was a little more difficult because NRC doesn't do that. I didn't know anybody locally. But we hired Bascom King down in California in about 2003 to um, do our measurement program. And he did for, um, well, up to about th four years ago. And he recently passed away. But he was handling amplifier measurements mainly, but we'd occasionally do pre-amplifiers. We never measured DACs with him, though. We stuck to amplifiers and pre-amplifiers. You know, one of the things you talked about is sort of the the expected backlash um, from manufacturers, speaker manufacturers in particular. But ha was there ever any backlash from readers? Because, you know, I mean, let's face it, there are some people in our hobby who are sort of hostile to the notion that measurements really mean anything for the reader. You know, I always, I always go with my gut feel. And when you said that, the first thing that um, jumped to mind was the Talon loudspeakers, which were big in the early 2000s. And if you ask me, they were crap. Just utter <laughs> junk. I mean, you just had to listen to these speakers to know they had no highs, they had no lows, and they weren't a Bose. They were <laughs> awful. They were awful. And they had these wild, wacky design ideas. And we did get this backlash from people because, no, this can't be right. People say great things about these speakers, blah, blah, blah. Well, the measurements, and this is, this is the theme of the measurements, are what they are. And actually, the measurements show how that speaker in particular sounded. So there was some backlash. And occasionally, we did get some backlash from people who thought, oh, I thought my speaker would measure a lot more neutrally, this, that. But in fact, over time, people have gone to trust our measurements, actually. I, I, the, the, the difficulty I find, there's been this sort of uh, uh, virus instilled in the audiophile community where there's there's a lot of writers almost none of whom have ever actually done a measurement no let me go let me amend that none of whom have ever actually done a measurement <laughs> to who who insist that measurements are meaningless and who've never read any of the research on this and i i find that as a measurement guy myself i'm just always kind of fighting against that that there's this this idea in the, you know, not just audiophiles, even some of the general public now that the measurements are meaningless. And so how do you address that when people bring that up to you? Certain, certain people, you're, they're going to come in with maybe they have that bias and they want to have that bias. You're never going to convince somebody who's just wants to be convinced that they're meaningless. They're, they just taken the stand in this. It's going to take a lot to convince them. But many people who have taken that stand just need a little bit of education sometimes, a little bit of 
okay, hang on, you think that, but why do you think that? So you try to understand why do you think measurements are useless? And if it is because they don't understand them or they see something in there that they don't like, but they do like what they hear, maybe you try to explain that. And a lot of times I think it's more just an understanding. That said, you are going to get these people who say, oh, measurements are useless. There's no value to them whatsoever. And like I said, you're never going to, you're never going to change those minds. But education, it goes a long way. It's not immediate, but over time, reasonable people come through. How do we know that these measurements you know, relate to what we hear? Well, there's been a lot of research on it. Obviously, Floyd Tool, National Research Council, Harmon carries on. Other companies as well continued on with research. Paradigm, I was just talking to them about the research since um, some of their guys who were at National Research Council moved on to their own uh, research center. So there is a lot of correlation between what sounds good and what doesn't. And there's a lot of understanding what to look at in the measurements that say, okay, maybe this thing doesn't measure to those ideals, but it actually might be mirroring what you hear. I think actually the danger right now is what's happening, particularly on one forum where the measurements themselves are getting taken too far. They're looking at the measurements. They're deciding what something sounds like based on basically reading Floyd Tool's book. And then going and listening to it. And I think that's actually more dangerous. In fact, I had a discussion in Munich recently with Peter Como, who heads the speaker design for the IAG group. So he's behind the Wharfdale speakers, the mission speakers, and he's a measurements guy. Everything's done on the measurements, but he's like, you really got to listen to these things because even small changes in loudspeakers, in the, in the response, in the crossover points selected, can have huge audible impacts, or at least significant, maybe not enormous, or guess what you define as enormous. But you really have to listen. So I think there's also the danger of people who have taken measurements too far. And, you know, I talked to Floyd Toole about this a couple months Mm -hmm. ago, and he said it all starts and ends with listening. And when you put measurements at the beginning and the end, that's a problem. And I've seen that with your, your headphone measurements. Sometimes you see something and go, wow, that doesn't kind of look like the ideal, but you like the sound of it. And so you got to kind of look at the measurements and understand why. Yeah. I I think that, you know, there's, I I think it's really important to note that, you know, just doing measurements is never enough. You have to listen. And ideally, you know, you do what they do at the NRC and at Harmon where you have, you know, panels of people listening in blind tests because that's sort of the gold standard, which of course, Audio publications usually can't really afford to do all that often. Or um, don't like to do them. Or don't like to do them. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. I, I think that's, this is one thing. So how do you feel about the people? There's there's a lot of guys on the internet now who basically just measure, and they put like a paragraph of listening notes, if even that. Yeah, that's that to me is really, really dangerous. If you do look back at all that NRC research, and I've been talking a lot about it in the last couple months with Paul Barton and that for the PSB documentary and whatnot, it was all revolving around listening and then doing measurements. And the measurements were done independently. So, and when you, do, you look at what's called the Green Book that came out of NRC, the listening correlated big time with the measurements. But the if you just go to the measurements first, that's a that's a big danger. It's a huge problem. Um, and like I said, there, there's a forum pretty much dedicated to doing just that. Um, 
there are people who just look at the measurements they do like or they don't like what they see and they just based on that. And I would say too, this is something Paul Barton reinforced to me a long time ago. Sometimes speaker measurements, the way something sounds and the way something looks isn't quite the same when it comes in speaker measurements. You mm-hmm. have to have a real kind of knowledge, almost a forensic analysis of what to look for in a speaker measurement. And that's sometimes when I people say to me, well, that, that speaker doesn't measure well. And I say, well, what does measure well mean? <laughs> Flat frequency response on axis isn't the only thing. Um, a tilted up frequency response on axis, if it's flat, can be a real problem. It could be ultra flat. But if you see the wrong kind of tilt in the balance, you see poor off axis dispersion, you see distortion coming up as a result of... Um, well, I'll give you an example. There was a, a, an extremely expensive loudspeaker, and I won't name the name because they changed them up a lot, but they got ultra flat frequency, ultra flat, mm-hmm. on and off axis. But when we measured that, we got that, and the distortion, the distortion was at about 10%. <laughs> and, and I remember one speaker designer saying, commenting off to the side, that's really hard to get those distortion figures out of those drivers. That's, I mean, you got to really work to do something that poorly. And later on, the designer told me, I thought flat frequency response was all that mattered. Yeah. yeah. So he, he muscled uh, his way into a flat frequency response. So when it comes to these speaker measurements, you know, I was talking to Dominic at Sim Audio about this, and they released their first speaker. Sim Audio has done electronics, really stellar electronics, and he's like, "You make a tiny difference, uh, a tiny change in electronics, and you get a, a, a tiny, tiny, tiny change. You make a big change in electronics, and sometimes it's not that big, but you make a small change in speakers, it's huge. Yeah, yeah, it's huge." Doug, I think you'll remember when I first came on board uh, Soundstage uh, late 2020, uh, one of the first things I told you was, you know, I was super excited to be involved with a publication that was doing measurements because to me, it is, you know, everybody learns differently. And a lot of times, <laughs> Brent and I joke that I learn by messing up, right? And so for me, one of the things that has been most fun about writing for Soundstage is I get to throw these predictions out that are either going to be supported or contradicted by the measurements. And if they're supported, I've learned something. And if they're contradicted, I've learned something. I mean, just to just to give an example, I, you know, over the past year, or so reviewed two different integrated amps by the same manufacturer and noticed, you know, different things about the performance, especially in terms of like bass authority. And and what I said in my, you know, review was, I think when Diego gets his hands on these, I think you'll find that this one is probably stable down to two ohms and this one isn't. Well, that's what the, the measurements bore that out. Right. But for yeah. me, it's not, it's not about bragging rights. It's about finding those limits of what, what do the measurements mean in terms of what I'm hearing? And that helps me when people write in emails and say, Hey, I've got these speakers. What amp should I, you know, I've got $500 to spend on an amp. What should I get? Or I've got this amp. What speaker should I put with it? And we're always getting these questions and, and largely the answer is, I don't know, <laughs> you know yeah. unless I've heard that exact combination. But but being able to learn more directly about what the measurements correlate to in terms of hearing has been a big help for me. But one thing I wanted to ask you is, what do you do as a publisher when when they don't match up, when the reviewer says one thing and the measurements say another? Well, um, let me give you a couple examples. First of all, I, it, it is possible to screw up measurements. So when they don't 
match up, you got to make sure you did your measurements correctly. It's easy to change what a speaker looks like by varying the microphone height. That's why we try to specify that. It's easy to mess up, and Diego's, um, he's not messing up right now, I hope, but he's in the lab uh, measuring an amplifier. It's easy to get erroneous results if you have bad connections or you run the test poorly or something. So when they don't match up or they appear not to match up and everything has done has been done correctly. The measurements are what they are. And sometimes what doesn't appear to match up sometimes comes through in the measurements. You can say, well, hang on. At first, it doesn't seem to match up, but hang on. Let's look at this. Let's look at that. You know, when you start, particularly with speaker designs, you go, well, maybe they're hearing this in the treble. Maybe they're hearing that. And you start analyzing the measurements and maybe what they're hearing or not hearing. Um, and let's face it too, uh, there's another thing too, and this is that um, reviewers screw up. Reviewers imagine differences. Reviewers um, think they hear differences that aren't there. Sometimes they pick yeah. out differences, sometimes they're not. And maybe some of those imaginary differences won't show up in the measurements because they're not there. And then one thing we haven't talked about is electronics. And people keep harping on this these days. And I think it's not a useless spec, but signal to noise ratio. Mm-hmm. higher the better right oh look at this this has got 110 db signal to noise ratio in other words that's the the amount of signal to the amount of noise well do you guys know what what is the audibility where does it become irrelevant probably you, 70 decibels or something right right so <laughs> you got these guys on the measurement forums oh this one's got 105 db signal to noise ratio crap this one's got 112 well, you're not hearing that. And if you are, that's an imaginary difference, okay? Mm-hmm. Let's face it. And, uh, you know, in fact, I was talking to um, the, the head of design at um, Name, and they stopped looking, not completely at signal-to-noise ratio, but beyond a certain threshold, they said, it just doesn't matter and we make sure other parts of the design are correct, not just chasing this one spec. And that's a danger too. So this idea of when they don't match up, well, what we ultimately do is just publish both and let people decide. Here's what the reviewer said. Here's what. And this is when Diego came on, he said, what, what, if, what if a product measures really poorly? And I'm like, providing we've done the measurements correctly, we publish it. It is what it is. Yeah. And Those are the ones that I like to publish. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. You know it's, it, if, if, if everything measured great, it would seem kind of a little boring to publish measurements, but it's almost like watching a, a car race, you know, you're kind of, <laughs> everybody likes to have a nice fast car race, but we, you know, we kind of enjoy the crack ups too, right? Well, I'll tell you something too. I would say at least 15, at least 15 speaker designs have been changed for the better as a result of our measurements. And I'll wow. tell you the one parameter uh, people are measuring distortion now, but back in the 2000s, 2010, you know, Stereophile can't measure distortion. Um, I haven't seen, well, one of the European, the German magazines measure distortion. I've never seen the British magazines, but we were measuring distortion and they were doing that at NRC for decades. So they, they have that in place. And the distortion will come up and the, the loudspeaker designer never knew it was there mm, because wow. they were unable to measure it. And then... An iteration later, that distortion problem is gone in the new version of the the speaker. So it's affected. So sometimes those measurements that show some problem is fixed the next time because they didn't know it was there. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's awesome. That's great. 
So all in all, I think I think the key with the measurements is you got to you got to do them correctly, and that's why you know we got the audio precision five five five. We use NRC's facility. We can trust it. If something goes wrong, we can diagnose it, and, and they are what they are, and for better or worse. And I think the thing is, though, you don't want to read too much of it, and your headphone measurements as well. They're consistent. They're reliable. I'll assume, Brent. That yeah. sometimes <laughs> things goes wrong. No, I'm, I assume well, sometimes things go wrong, right? And you kind of go, well, what's going on? But what you ultimately send us, right? You feel it's correct. One other thing I wanted to ask you about, Doug, is, uh, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm giving people a little bit of a peek behind the curtain here, but just to sort of walk people through a process of, okay, I review an integrated amp. I turn my copy in. It might be going live, you know, a month later or what have you. It's all laid out. The photos are in it. You send me the copy. We make any tweaks to the review, but there are no measurements to be seen. Like those measurements don't go live generally until the day before the review is published. Like I, I'm sort of waiting for the review to go live yeah. so I can go in and look at the measurements and go, oh, did I get it right? Did I get it wrong? Did I, did I make any mistakes? Did I learn anything? What, how did that develop? Was that always been your philosophy or was there <laughs> something that made you realize, oh, I got to hide these measurements until, well, until it's the, too late? <laughs> it, not till too late. Okay. So why they're, why they're to the end and I'll, I'll go, have you seen Diego's electronics measurements he does for us? <laughs> when I told him to go all out, I mean, and I'm putting together, I have to put together the very end of it, right? He supplies the whole thing. And literally there's a, um, a mini DSP integrated amp with die rack. And he's got 50 graphs. This takes forever to put together, wow. right? So sometimes, and you're like, you put this off until the very end. And that, that review is going on the 15th. Roger Cano wrote it. Okay, so that's sometimes why the electronics measurements in particular take so long to get online. It's like, oh, God, we got to now deal with Diego's measurements that are so thorough. <laughs> and this is going to take hours. So you, you get a big cup of coffee and you sit up late. But um, the actual um, viewing of the measurements, I think, is vital not to. In fact, I'm in charge of the speaker measurements at NRC. There's a technician, Randy, who does the measurements. But if I take a speaker down there and I haven't listened to it, and Randy's measurement, and I say, Randy, I'm leaving the room. Don't tell me about the measurements. Get it all done. You know, if there's any anomaly, flag me. I know how they can bias the listening. I know how they can bias your impressions. So let's do it right. Like Floyd said, it begins and ends with listening. Listen yeah. first, measure. And Brent, you probably have to do the same thing with the headphone reviews, right? To, well, so how I came to that is I know the bias that knowing the measurements, particularly speaker measurements, can impart. It's a little, it's a little different with me. Not a product. I measure thirty-six headphones a year, at least for soundstage, and actually then do some more for my columns and stuff. And then I run a bunch of other measurements for other publications. So I've got a lot churning, and I can't always measure. You know, I, I measure headphones in a batch usually, and so sometimes I do the measurements before, sometimes after. However, I've been, you know, headphone measurements. I mean, you know, we have a general idea of what to look for. And I can look at a headphone measurement and go, well, that's really wacky or it's not. But if a lot of them are kind of within the same general sort of shape of frequency response, but little differences of a decibel or two in the bass or the treble can make a huge difference in the sound. And so I can, if I see a really wacky headphone measurement, 
you know, it is very unlikely that that's going to sound good. It might, but it probably won't. Um, but then if I see, you know, reasonable headphone measurements, I don't draw any conclusions because you, then you have to like kind of compare it to a bunch of stuff and kind of dig into it. And it's just really, 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 really unwise to judge a headphone purely by the measurements when these little tiny differences of a decibel or so can make the difference between liking and, and not liking a set of headphones. Once you've done this for long enough, a lot of your bias tends to start to go away because you've found products from you know every brand that suck and from every brand that are not maybe not every brand, but from a lot of brands that are great, right? And mm-hmm. so you start to realize any bias you might have that say, oh, Sony's great. Well, no, there's Sony headphones that are amazing and Sony headphones that just suck. And it's kind of, and, and you know, name any other headphone brand, and it's pretty much going to be like that. So as your expertise grows, your certainty decreases. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the people well, who don't know anything who are really sure of themselves. Isn't that the truth? When I, when I started measuring speakers, the first six months, a year, I didn't know anything, and I knew it. But then you start, wow, now I know a lot. You start reading this. And in the first five years, you think you know everything. Yeah. And then after about 10 years, you realize, no, 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 no. And now I'm far more uncertain. (laughs) Mm -hmm. By the way, what you said too, I I fully believe on the measurements. I think it was Scott Bagby at Paradigm said it to me. Blind listening makes you a better sighted listener. And that is because, you know, Paradigm likes to do blind listening tests, and I've done them there. Mm -hmm. Um, NRC, I've done them at NRC, um, other companies, PSB, whatnot. And when you see the results of a blind listening test and go, oh, my God, I I, I had no ideas listening to this. I had no – it makes you realize how susceptible you are for bias. So when you go into sighted listening, that stays in your mind. Yeah, you know, blind blind listening, going through blind listening tests makes you humble. If you don't go through blind listening tests, you will never understand what you don't know, and you will never understand the limitations of your ears. And so I I really, I I think, you know, writers who don't, who refuse to do blind listening tests are just sort of like, they might as well get a tattoo on their forehead that says, (laughs) I I don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Well, you know. And the worst still are the people who brag about their blind listening abilities and and their 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 braggadociousness makes you realize that they're not i i saw a comment on one of danny ritchie's videos where a guy said oh if you came in and changed my cables i would know because i can hear the difference between five nines purity copper and six nines purity copper in an instant and i'm like yeah that guy's never done a blind test (laughs) never yeah do you you want to know another it was an it was a more informal blind test but this one this was about 1990 okay before i was doing audio reviewing my friend ron set up a blind test at, at, at a friend's house so there were a bunch of us there and i had just dumped over three grand on a Theta Data Basic Transport and a Prime DAC. Remember remember Theta? Did you? Very well. Oh, the revered stuff. And um, a friend of his also had a Rotel 555 or 565 CD player. I can't remember which one it was, but it doesn't really matter. Rotel was making very good CD players those days, but it was only about five or $600. And I had my separates, which were over three grand praised in stereophile and elsewhere is great and this little rotel and ron set it up correctly blind he he had a lot of technical ability so it was level matched and you know we had a hundred percent 
correlation. There were about five of us there listening as to what we preferred. Wow. You know, the, the Rotel. <laughs> the Rotel. My, yeah. I remember what one of the sort of, you know, life-changing moments for me is Brent and I were in New York one time. This is my first trip to New York. And we went to hang out with Sandy Gross, our friend, uh, who, uh, you know, started Polk and started Definitive and started Golden Ear. Um, life-changing moment for me is when we walked into Sandy's um, listening room and he was using a PlayStation as a CD player. So <laughs> right. this was PS1. And I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I get it. I get it. So it sounded yeah. amazing. Yeah. So, uh, you know, at the end of our, when, when, when my Theta got stomped and I still have that stuff, I don't use it. It's in boxes somewhere. My friend Ron said, I hate doing these blind listening tests for, for people who bought stuff. Cause it always turns out like this. Mm. Okay. Well, we'll take a break and we'll be back on the other side. Doug, thanks for joining us, man. Thanks, yeah, Doug. thanks for having me on. Thanks. Thanks a lot. It was fun. As they say in Radioland, we're back. I'm Brent Butterworth. And I am Dennis Berger. And we are going to wrap up this segment with a discussion that you, Dennis Berger, turned me on to. It's a YouTube video featuring Paul McGowan, who's the founder of PS Audio, a company that's been making amplifiers and various other things for, oh, 30 years at least, a long, long time. And Paul has this new video where he talks about why don't you take it from here since you're the one who dug into this? Yeah. So I, you know, I spend a lot of time on YouTube and, um, I always see when PS audio posts a new video and this, this latest that he, well, at, by the time this comes out, it may not be the latest, but as we're recording, it's the latest. It was called, can speakers be too resolving? And, um, so for people who don't follow PS audio, one of the things that Paul does is he will take um, reader email or listener email, fan email, and read those and sort of respond to them on, on the YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many of these are genuine, or I don't know if it's like they're <laughs> making guys. Uh, it's like, <laughs> like, is there, are like these penthouse people, forum uh, letters? Yeah. Or is it actual <laughs> penthouse? It could be, I don't know. But anyway, there was a new, uh, there was a new letter that came in and they're always printed out. Or this guy said, you know, Oh, I was listening to Adele's new album on my uh, Onkyo receiver and SVS speakers. And it sounded amazing. And then, and then I put it on my hi-fi man headphones and they're so much more resolving and the recording just sounded like garbage. So I'm wondering, can speakers be the same? Can speakers be too resolving? And, you know, Paul responded to that. But what's interesting is I was trying to never throughout the course of the conversation, could I really get a sense of what he means by resolving? So I started searching the PS audio YouTube channel and it turns out he has done a lot of videos about this question of like, what does it mean mm -hmm. for a speaker to be resolving? Can it be too resolving? You know, and it, it's, I think the most interesting thing about it for me is I've watched, I don't know, maybe five or six videos from Paul about what resolving means mm -hmm. in regard to speakers. And I still don't have a freaking clue. So I want to ask you, Brent Butterworth, 
What does it mean for a speaker to be resolving? Well, see, this is where my my 30 plus years of experience in audio really pays off. As I understand it, resolving is a combination of inner detail and microdynamics. Okay, that's I'm going to need and you, you know to what? find those that's terms good for me. A, that's, that's as good an explanation as any. I, I found it remarkable, the video that you sent me, Paul sort of identified certain speakers as resolving and certain speakers as not resolving. And yeah. some of the ones he recommended, he, he noted as resolving are speakers that are fine, yeah. but nothing special. And some of the ones he said are not resolving are speakers that are really well regarded speakers where the the measurements are great speakers that are that are listening tested to the nth degree yeah i've gone through a number of his videos in addition to the ones that i sent you and sort of compiled a small list of speakers that he says are resolving and speakers that he says are not resolving can you and give us some I examples w- i can um so the ELAC debut B5, mm-hmm. the original one without the, you know, the, there's a new one like B5.2, whatever, yeah. that has a front firing port. But he was talking about the original B5. Mm-hmm. He says is very resolving. He says that Revels are not resolving. The whole brand, said, everything from that brand? I, I guess, yeah. Okay. I, and he says Bowers and Wilkins can be too resolving. Um, uh Maggie's apparently are just the perfect amount of resolving. And here's where I got really, really confused. So consistently dude says focal speakers are resolving, right? Okay. But Sonus Fobbers are not. And uh, it's like, I have looked at a bunch of, I like, I took this compiled list that I pulled from six, seven, eight videos of his about resolving speakers and, and sort of like, okay, what are the, what's the differences between the ones he says are resolving and are not like, like I'm looking at frequency response. I'm looking at distortion. I'm looking at uh, basically every different variable that mm-hmm. you can measure. And to me, there's just no meaningful correlation between what these speak, how these speakers actually perform and whether or not they qualify as resolving, you know, I mean, this analogy that he gives is like, Oh, well, you can think about like driving a car. So a non-resolving speaker just sounds great with everything. It's like riding in a Cadillac, man, you know, it's just like, you can't feel the road at all. And a super resolving speaker, that's like driving a Tesla, you know, you could feel mm-hmm. every bump in the road. And I'm like, okay, but what does that mean in terms of speaker performance? Like, okay, you've described it in terms of cars, but that does not translate into listening to speakers. What does it actually mean? So does he, does he, did, did he find this out through, through, blind listening tests, through measurements, through any kind of rigorous type of research? Are there any AES papers, you know, Audio Engineering Society papers on whether or not speakers are resolving? I mean, is there is there any other thing that you can point to that, that you know, like, like, for example, if we want to find out how much distortion matters in a loudspeaker, well, there's people that have done really extensive studies on that, where they did blind mm-hmm. testing and they did measurements and they tried a whole bunch of different speakers and they found some that distort and some that don't and they compared them in blind tests and they found out how much distortion measures and it actually doesn't usually 
or how much distortion matters, it usually doesn't matter all that much. But, you know, whereas with this, uh, are, are there any tests or the, is there any data out there that can tell us other than one guy says something's resolving and something's not? I mean, maybe there is if I could figure out like what resolving correlates to in terms of actual speaker performance, because that's that's the thing. It's just sort of this it's this hand wavy language that is it's there's kind of a winking like, well, you just have to trust me thing. I, I, like I said, I watched all of these videos trying to figure out what it means. And the only place that I could find him actually talking about it in terms of audio, not making analogies with chefs preparing food or driving a car or whatever. Like, I don't know what it, there's no correlation there, but one, the one time he really talked about it in terms of audio, he says this, a resolving speaker can resolve differences between different areas of music. So it's the resolution of differences, the differences in voices, in instruments, in tonalities, in all manner of differences that most other speaker systems don't resolve. But I, and then he goes on to say, oh, like with a resolving speaker, you can hear the differences in the levels of reverb, whereas in a non-resolving speaker, you can't but I still don't understand like what that actually means. And it always gets back to at one point he says, Oh, some clip speakers are very resolving and some clip speakers are not. And if you want to know the difference, call and talk to us, call us and we'll, we'll tell you which ones are resolving and which ones aren't, but it's hmm. still, to me, it's just a very sort of, it's, it's all very magical and spooky. And it just, there's, there's nothing ever nailed down. There's nothing, there's nothing ever said to where you could contradict it. That's the biggest problem for me. If you can't. Yeah. Except to say well, there's no evidence. How do I put this? Because I think Paul is an extremely nice guy and I mm -hmm, think sure. this audio is a yeah. well-respected. So I don't want to be make, they make a lot here, of, there's they a, make a lot of very good products. I can't think of one of their products. that's not good. Yeah, so I, I don't want to be seen as as disparaging him, but but there's a but there's a very sort of um, there's a mystical aspect to all of this that just does not resonate with me. There's a very sort of you know I'm thinking about the Beatles going to India and meeting with the Maharishi, whatever <laughs> you know, and they eventually mm -hmm. realized, oh, this dude ain't on the level. There's an aspect of this that feels like that to me. It's like trust me, and it's like okay, I do until you violated my trust. And with this one, I kind of feel like maybe you're violating my trust. So anybody can say, Oh, I hear that. Right. And there's yeah. a lot of, there's a long, long, long legacy of audio writers who claim to hear things without any substantiation whatsoever that they're actually hearing those things. Right. And, and you can't do like, like what you can with video and go, okay, well like point to it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. That's the frustrating and, thing. And so anybody in audio is free to say whatever they want and to use, to make up whatever terms they want to, to, to throw around terms like resolving or inner detail or God knows what and say, I hear it. Anybody can do that. What very few people can do is substantiate their claims through multiple listener blind testing. If you do that, I buy it. If you say, here's how I define resolving. Now we're going to put together blind tests and we'll see if people can identify certain speakers as resolving and certain speakers as not resolving. Now, they will be, if you say resolving means something or another, right? People right. will identify, uh, one listener will go, oh, 
this one's resolving and this one's not. The next listener might agree, might not. This is what scientists do as opposed to marketers. Yeah. They say, hey, I have a, I have a, a, an idea here. I'm going to try to prove it and, or, you know, see if I'm right or wrong. I'm going to do all these, you know, unbiased tests with a bunch of listeners and see if they can corroborate what I'm saying. And maybe mm-hmm. they can, and maybe they can't. And then exactly. say, That's, I'm going to do tests and say, I'm going to do blind tests. And you know what? Put it out as an AES paper. I'm going to be more forgiving than you, Brent, because I, I would, I would be satisfied if, if, if they didn't even go that far. And, you know, I know Paul McGowan is not listening to us, but if he is, I would just say, you don't even have to do double blind testing to impress me with this, Paul. Just tell me what you mean. Are you saying that it is, you know, a, 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 a bit of a boost in the presence region? It, you know, it's like, like you think maybe a, a speaker that is 1.5 dB up at between three and five K or go. are you saying it is time alignment between the tweeter and the mid range to make sure the, you know, the impulses are aligned. It's like, like just actually tell us what you mean. And that way other people can go off and test this. And, you know, Paul's one of these people that thinks, well, you know, there are things that we can hear that we can't measure. I respect him enough to go, okay, well, we agree to disagree, but, but still speaking clear enough terms that other people can go test it or right. Exactly. I'm going to, I'm going to sit here and go, you're making crap up. (laughs) So wait, I got it. I got it. I got it. Okay, so mm-hmm. see, it's the, the I, I would define it as it's like dogs. See, so you have, if I'm correct, an American Staffordshire Terrier. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, yes. so he's a short-coated dog. So you can mm-hmm. clearly see the resolution of his body shape there. Now, I <laughs> yeah, have a Shih Tzu, and I'm too cheap to get her cut all that often. So with her, you can't see the, the body shape is less resolved. So she's okay. like an MP3. Is that what you're yeah, telling so me? Yeah. So she's like a, she's like a like the she's like the 64 <laughs> kilobit per second MP3 equivalent with a dog. <laughs> yeah, and Bruno is you know DSD times 12 or whatever. And see, so. and here's the thing: sometimes in the audio world, that counts as proof. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It shouldn't. It absolutely shouldn't. Well, this has been a fun conversation, Indeed Brent. I think it has. I think it's about time to wrap this up. You want to do some credits? I would love to do some credits. So <laughs> we are, uh, let's credit our, our our founder, Doug Schneider, for being kind enough to join us and, and entertain us with his anecdotes about speaker measurements and other measurements. And um, we are also, and we are part of the Soundstage network of nine microsites, a very active YouTube channel, and one awesome podcast. And, Absolutely. Um, uh, what else do we have to credit? Well, I, we, we should definitely say I'm doing the the engineering and recording this time around. Mm-hmm. You might be doing editing and mastering. I, I might know. be it's doing this. editing, mastering, mixing, and stuff. The music will yeah. probably be by me, but I think I'll weave a little music from my good friend Terry Landry into this one as well. Yeah, I think that's enough for this week. So I guess we'll uh, we'll see you guys in two weeks. Okay. Bye, everybody. Bye.